selling is hard, right? This is what a lot of people don't know. And nothing happens in a sales situation unless you make it happen. And your ability to get through adversity is grit to me. Hi, I'm Jubin, business development and go-to-market operating partner at Kleiner Perkins. And I'm really excited to bring you this episode of Go-To-Market Grit a show that interviews amazingly successful sales and go-to-market leaders and explores how they operate, think, and deploy grit every day in order to build world-class teams. And now, on to this episode. Kevin, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jeevan. Thanks for having us. So, look, I like to get these things started by reading my guests' backgrounds back to them. And so, let me know what I'm missing and you can fill in the blanks, fair? Sure. Okay, so you got your BA at St. Joseph's University. You then became a consultant at Accenture. You did that for about three years. You then went on to be a district sales manager at Siebel Systems. You spent three years doing that from about 99 to 02. You then went to be a BD manager at NCR Corporation for about a year and a half, then went to SAP and spent almost 11 years there, starting as an AE, then moving to the VP of Enterprise Sales and Field Operations, then to National VP for Big Data and Analytics, and then VP for Retail within the Western Region and North America Strategic Accounts. And then you did Oracle for two years, starting as the AVP of Western North America and TOLA, and then moving to the VP of North America for Healthcare and Higher Ed. And then you went on to be the CRO of data sciences for about a year and a half. You left Oracle and then you came right back to Oracle because you got acquired. Then you spent about seven months at Oracle as the group vice president. Can't get away from that place. And then you are currently the CRO, the chief revenue officer of Clary, which you've been doing for about two years. That's correct. Did I miss anything? No, you got it. Okay. When you were bouncing around at SAP and even at Oracle, were you taking on similar responsibilities within different verticals within these companies? Yeah. So, you know, obviously 11 years at SAP had a lot of fortune in having different roles there. I started as a essentially a net new hunter in the mid-market space in Southern California, you know, and essentially what was creating and taking a picked over patch and turning it into a gold mine. From there, I moved up market into more enterprise level accounts into what at that time was SAP's uh, PCN or strategic accounts, where this was to grow massive within a handful of, of really big install base customers. From there, and it's not on my resume, the big deal lead for the West, where my job was to help other AE structures uh, strategize and negotiate complex deals. From there, I moved into my first leadership role, which was running the Southern part of the West. Successfully drove that business for over two years and then took on a, a national role in launching what at that time was called SAP's suite on HANA, which is now basically a cloud ERP. Almost getting to do a startup within a massive company and then uh, moving over into the retail business. And today you are at Clary. So for the audience listening who may not know, Sapphire Ventures did the Series D late last year and the LP at Sapphire is SAP, isn't it? Yes. Okay, so you just keep double helixing back to the same companies. And I wanna to touch on that because that actually happens at Clary in a really interesting way. So anyway, Sapphire Ventures did the Series D, putting the valuation at over half a billion dollars. Sequoia, Bain Capital did some of the early funding rounds. Arif and Enrique, both great guys, if you're listening, hello, are sitting on your board. What does your sales organization look like today? 
who reports into the CRO, you, and what organizations, that kind of thing. And then maybe what does Clary do? Yeah. So first, what does Clary do? The greatest thing about my job is I get to work with other sales leaders, CROs, presidents, SVPs of sales, and help them transform the way I did. I came from a world where you led by spreadsheet. You spent half of your week trying to get the narrative on the business and rolling it up in a spreadsheet to only then at that point, roll it up to your executive team to have the narrative already changed. Clary gives complete control of the business over to the sales leader, all the way down to the sales rep who gets to become the CEO of their own franchise. So for me, Clary's been transformational, not only for myself and how I lead and how I run a team, it's also transformed my personal life. You might ask how. You think about it, you live your life in three-month increments, right? A quarter. Always knowing where you are, what's working, what's not working, where you have to go, where your risk is, where you can accelerate, you have peace of mind. You always know where you are. There's no guessing. There's no interrogating the business. So it's really not only transformed work, how I lead, but my personal life in profound ways. And the greatest thing about my job is I get to take that to other people. Clary is not just for the selling team, but it's for the entire revenue organization. So you think about it, this shift to SaaS and now to consumption, there's a continuous customer journey. And there's so many participants in that revenue journey, customer success, solution engineering, top of funnel teams like marketing and inside sales, office of finance, the renewals team, all need to be a part of that conversation. And we bring all of that together. Everyone's on the same page. So Clary, in a nutshell, predictability, command and control, understanding what's happening across the enterprise. What does your org look like today? Who reports the CRO? Yeah. So I have two sales organizations, a commercial business and an enterprise business. We break them up because there are some different selling motions, complexity, scale, as well as you know, in the commercial business, you find a lot more companies like Clarity, right? Those that are growing, this is where you find most of the unicorns. So I have a leadership team on both of those that report into me. So consider that field. I have a growth organization. So a gentleman that runs, and this is a unique role in that he reports directly to me and also indirectly into our marketing CMO. So he owns field marketing, demand gen, so all the top of funnel, the SDR team, and sales enablement. I also am lucky to have a uh, sales operations and strategy team. So with me is a gentleman that runs all of my forward-looking go-to-market strategy, my sales operations. Under there is also business development. So think about work we do with PE firms and consulting firms, an analytics team. So we always know where we are and what we're working on. And he also owns the solution engineering team. Customer success reports into a different organization who owns support, customer success, and services. Got it. Thanks. That's good context. And I want to come back to this. Before I do, I had some other background type questions before we jump into Clary stuff. The first is that when I was doing some research, one of the things that struck me about Clary was that your CEO, Andy, your CTO, your VP of product, your VP of engineering, and your VP of customer success all came from Clearwell. Then I started putting a few pieces together and I realized, holy crap, Arif mm-hmm. was the CEO of Clearwell. 
Enrique was the CEO of Symantec, which ultimately acquired Clearwell. And so it's like this Clearwell mafia. And so <laughs> I guess the question that I have, and obviously that's very exciting and I think encouraging from the outside looking in because it's a team that's proven to have a track record of success, not only building a business, but doing so together, which is awesome and exciting. When you come in two years ago, you know, you're a bit of an outsider. You're, you know, I put in air quotes, kind of the bigger company guy. You're going into an earlier stage. What was that like? Was there any, um, I don't know, added chip on your shoulder or I don't know. I, I guess I'll leave it open-ended and just get your reaction to what was that like? So this team's actually been together longer than Clearwell. This is their third journey together with this collective nucleus. Clearwell was also an AI-based company that was doing AI for e-discovery. And Clary kind of was the next genesis of applying AI to a different you know, line of business. So as I was interviewing, it became pretty clear. This group had been together a long time. And the first question I'd ask myself is, am I going to actually have a seat at the table? How do I break into a circle that quite honestly has been together over 20 years? And as I went through my interview process, I'd actually almost consider it a consulting project. I, I got to know the company really well. I got to know the personalities. And what I found is a e-staff, it's what we call our leadership team, who was very open and collaborative and looking for someone who, who may have had different experiences than they have had in their collective journey of quite honestly, almost a quarter century. After two years of being there, I not only am grateful that I chose this group that works really hard together because they have empathy for each other. They care for each other. We have this value called jazz band, which is essentially how we work with one another. And this e-staff, this nucleus has been open to others coming into it. Myself, our chief marketing officer who started about three or four months before me, and most recently, a, a new chief human resource officer who has been with us now for about four months. Amazingly collaborative, amazingly open. And I feel like through hard work and what we've done, I earned a seat at the table where my voice is as equal as the rest of them. So initial concerns alleviated quickly would be uh, the way to phrase it. Yeah. It helps putting up a few good quarters at the beginning too, I, I would imagine. It's interesting. You said the interview process was a bit like a consulting gig. So one of the things that I've tried to do in more recent episodes is kind of demystify your role. I think people listening aspire to be in your job, but you know they think that you just kind of get placed into these things and it turns out you actually have to interview as well. Can you tell us more about what that means when you say it was a consulting gig? Do you mean like you kind of did a, hey, here's what I would do in my 30, 60, 90 days. If I was running sales, this is what it would look like, kind of paving that yellow brick road. Yeah. So I approached the interview process maybe a lot differently than some of the others I was competing for the job with. In my career, I'd seen a lot of senior folks come in above me. And I always observed the way they started that job. And what I learned, especially from those that didn't do it well, was you can't come into a new role and bring your old playbook with you because every situation is unique. Every company is different. So I wanted to come in and I wanted to really understand Clary. So when I said it was like a consulting project and I got to hand it to Clary, they were really gracious with their time. Is I got to spend time with each e-staff, really deep time, thinking through, talking about business and strategy. Then I got to go a level deeper into the next level down, 
within the ESAP. And then, you know, after about a month, I came back and I presented to the ESAP, which was essentially a SWOT analysis of what I found, the process I was going to go through over the first 30, 60, 90 days. And then I actually had a chance to do that with Clary's board, right? And you think about some of those personalities on the board, you know, they're tough, right? They're going to test you. I differentiated myself because I didn't come in with a point of view. I came in saying, I'm going to learn and understand the business, and then I'm going to prescribe. Most people come in and prescribe right away. And unless you truly understand the business and its uniqueness, you can't prescribe. If you were doing a postmortem and giving yourself a grade, how do you think your early analysis, maybe not the interview, but just your early analysis was reading the tea leaves? How do you think you did? I think I did awesome. I understood the opportunity during that process and the potential for where the company could go. How do you balance this mindset of, just call it first principles, right? Like just trying to understand what's working in your perspective and what's not, and just having an open mind about things. How do you balance that versus actually coming in with unique insights that people think, well, this is what makes Kevin unique. Like you wanna come in with a few things that are yours. What are those things? Maybe my question. Are those things culture, right? Are those things certain things about the way that you drive culture, your secret sauce, if you will, that are your unique insights or value add that you could still bring to the table while keeping a really open mind about the business and what you want to do with it? So culture for me is really important. You know, I spent a lot of my career as a seller, as an individual contributor, and I believe in the reverse pyramid. I believe that I work for all of the individuals in the organization. My job is to play whatever role they need me to play in their business so that they're successful. Two, my job is also to set the strategy on where we're going and be able to articulate that in support of their individual Clary franchises. So I don't lead from, you know, although we all don't travel anymore, I don't lead from a cube, right? I, I lead from the front and I want to enable all of my people, my leaders, my individual contributors to feel like they have the ability to set the business model, the go-to-market strategy for their individual territories. And then my job is to support that franchise. So that's one for me is, is the reverse pyramid. Two is that I am not an expert in everything. Quite honestly, I'm not an expert in anything. I think I'm really good at assembling a team of experts to help me think through what is going to work best. And I have to thank Clary for allowing me to do this. They allowed me to make some hires that joined with me that have changed the trajectory of the company and where we're going. So I learned this from many years of watching Bill McDermott at SAP, probably the world's greatest salesperson, the world's greatest inspirer, the world's greatest champion of the art of selling. He always had a collection of really smart people with him. They knew how to, to get things done. and knew how to take his vision and make it reality. So my second thing is really making sure I have people that can help me execute my vision. So I think that's number two, right? It's not prescribing, but understanding and then executing against it. And three, you got to have freaking fun in the job. You got to love what you're doing. You got to have a passion for your product. And so really early on, it became clear to me that Clary was built for me. I had been waiting for this solution my entire career. And so it was almost kismet that I found the solution 
at the right time in my career. And I felt like I could go drive this and change other people's ways of leading. Yeah. And to dive into it one more level, when you are evaluating an opportunity and you have a set of people that you know would follow you there and that you know you'd want them to follow you, are you, I guess, A, socializing the opportunity with them? Hey, what do you think? Does this feel good? Would you do this? What are we missing? B, are you then socializing that back to the e-staff or the e-board or the board of directors or whatever, kind of laying the groundwork for in order for me to come? Okay, great. Like this feels like a good mutual alignment, but I need to bring a few people that are going to help ensure our success. Do you start that process well in advance of actually taking the job? Yeah, Jeevan, that's a great question. So my last CRO role was really for me. It was to get me the experience that not too many people are going to go hire someone who spent 20 plus years working in big companies and give them a serial role, right? So I had to go find mine. And that one was for me. And it was a massive learning experience and a, a success in a year and a half. Fast forward to Clary, during that interview process that I mentioned, actually during that board presentation, I had a slide. I said, these are the people I'm going to bring with me to Clary. And if I was to pull up that PowerPoint now, probably 70% of them came with me because I felt like this was not just the opportunity for me. This was the opportunity for them. And so in your career, right, you collect, assemble, find just amazing talent, right? And if you continue to nurture them and work with them, when you find the right place to go, they'll follow you. And so I started socializing during the interview process, the type of talent that I wanted to bring with me. And at the same time, I started talking to those talented folks about the opportunity that I was looking at. And as soon as I started, I started having them interview. And I'm proud to say, you know, I've been able to bring a team with me of, of trusted, hardworking, creative people. And then guess what? They've started to bring their networks in. And so all of a sudden, I don't have to hire recruiters at all. We don't use any external recruiters. We built the whole go-to-market machine out of a collective network. That's awesome. It's funny, even hearing you say that, that happens down to the rep level too. Like I'll, I'll be interviewing reps where they'll say, hey, I need to bring my SE. If we can't accommodate that, then he's or she is just as much of a kind of critical cog to this puzzle of me being successful as I am. And so that happens all the way down to the rep level, not necessarily um, in a leadership role as well. Okay, so one other question on background. So you were at Siebel in 99. At the time, Siebel Systems was recognized by Deloitte as the fastest growing company in US history with, I don't even know if this is like real, 782,000% growth over five years, whatever that means. By 2002, the company's top line had stalled. The stock had fallen to a fraction of its former stratospheric levels. You were there from 99 to 2002. So one of the interesting cultural things that I've seen, and history tends to repeat itself, is that Salesforce beat Siebel I say beat Siebel, but whatever. Siebel had a pretty good outcome. But Siebel was optimized to sell to large companies and had on its roster kind of a large, expensive direct sales team. And Salesforce was built to go after the smaller and medium-sized businesses with nimble kind of internal marketing and what we call inside sales today. So I look at Salesforce today and I'm like, oh man, that doesn't feel like the Salesforce of 2000. They're starting to feel a little bit more like Siebel in some weird way. And again, I'm not trying to like make this some movie 
narrative here, but I look at Clary and I think, gosh, that feels a lot like the Salesforce of that day. Small, nimble, attacking the mid-market, going up enterprise. I don't know. I, I thought you would be pretty uniquely qualified to just talk about what you saw then, what you see now, and if there's any similarities or differences. I could probably spend two hours on this topic with you. <laughs> I found myself at a center at a college, right? And what they taught me was how to understand business process and how to become an expert in things quickly. But I was not a consultant, right? I wasn't meant to do project work. I wanted to sell. To me, being a sales rep was like playing in the major leagues, like getting to the NFL. And so I had to find a way to get from consultant to sales. And so I came over to Siebel as a solution engineer. For a year and learned a lot, learned how to storytell, learned the product really well, learned the intricacies of CRM. And I raised my hand after a year, and there was a guy running North America, actually, the same guy I mentioned earlier, Bill McDermott. I said, I want to be a sales rep. And I became a sales rep in telco utilities. Siebel, right, was really the first enterprise CRM. We were selling a very complicated process, especially in telco, that required a lot of other connections systems to provision, et cetera. And so at a young age, I think that time I was, as I moved into sales rep, I was 27. Siebel stock was soaring. I thought I was going to retire in two years, to quite honestly, right? <laughs> Even the, the little bit I got when I started was all of a sudden worth a lot of money. And you talked about the rapid growth and then the rapid deceleration. What happened? Dot-com bubble burst. 9-11 happened. Salesforce came on the market. And Salesforce took a different approach. Siebel fought its way in through both sales and IT, heavy IT, because it was a lot of work to get that implemented. Salesforce went in through the business and made it easy to consume and use. I think the big, well, I'm going to say there's been no difference. The only thing that's changed in CRM since I started at Siebel to today is it's gone from on-premise to cloud. The end of the day, right, it's still capturing account, contact, opportunity, and giving some system of record for what's happening. Because of that, that's why companies like Clarity's exist. We're really the system of engagement. We're really the system of prediction that looks at not only what's happening in the CRM, but what's happening all outside of the CRM, right? So much activity happens from top of funnel to middle of funnel to bottom of funnel. And that's what's always been missing. If I go back to being a CRM sales rep, and also a user of CRM throughout my career, the CRM just takes. It doesn't give anything back to the seller and to the manager. It's just what happened in the past and the point of time. The transition that's now happened is you see all of these systems that are now above and around the CRM. You think of the outreaches and the gongs and the high spots and the sales lofts and the clarities. We're now least Clary is a platform for revenue. And one of our data sources is the system of record, which is CRM. We now actually give something back to that seller. We give them the tools and the insights and the predictions that the CEO of the company gets. They can now drive their business and get something back. So that's how I've seen this evolution take place. On-prem to cloud, and now all this other ecosystem has developed that's taken the system of record and other signal data and combined it and given prediction, given insight, and the ability to run the business. So there is a phrase in sales that's very vogue right now, revenue operations. 
there's a bunch of different flavors of that phrase, if you will. Does that basically just mean becoming more data oriented? What does that actually mean? And do you guys think about it in a different way or a similar way? You know, and the reason I ask, just to lead the witness a little bit, is because Clary helps sales leaders become more data oriented. It helps sales reps be better at understanding their data, managing up, down, whatever it is. What does revenue operations mean in your mind? A couple of things, right? The evolution from this on-premise selling to this SaaS, right, this subscription world, has meant that you have a continuous customer journey. And quite honestly, you have to resell your customer at every turn. And so a lot of buying happens and decision-making happens without even a sales rep being involved, right? So you go all the way to top of funnel to you know, your outbound marketing, your nurturing, your ABM, to then you got someone kind of thinking about you. How do you engage them from an inside sales perspective? How do you engage them with content? How do you engage them with partners? All of that's happening without a sales rep ever touching that customer, right? So you need to understand, is it working? Are you in the right swim lanes? Are you collecting that data? Then you actually, your inside sales organization might set a meeting up, right? And then your sales rep's getting involved, right? And then you've got to move it through the funnel. And that sales rep, the modern sales rep is using all these different tools to engage that customer. Do we understand how that engagement is happening? So at the end of the day, only so much is happening in the CRM. Then you sell that customer. You have to implement them. You have to onboard them. You have to make them successful. Are you hitting your onboarding targets? Are they using your product? Do you understand usage of that product? Do you understand the white space in that account so that you continue to sell them more? Then you have to actually renew, right? And you have to collect. And so this is army of folks that are responsible for acquiring the customer, making the customer successful, renewing the customer, expanding the customer. So what are the teams that are involved, right? You have marketing, you have inside sales, you have sales, you have implementation, you have enablement and onboarding, you have customer success who's continuing to support. You've got probably an account management team who's maintaining the relationship. You have procurement. All these people are touching this customer. All these people are having different levels of engagement to continue that relationship. So there's a lot of data. You talk about data, right? Data is now the foundation of everything. And so you need to understand what's going on in that continuous customer journey so that you can make right decisions, you can spot trends, you can figure out where you're going, you can figure out how you need to grow your organization. So I think it's that evolution. And so the other evolution that's had to take place is all these people have had to evolve, right? Sales reps today are so different than the relationship sellers of the past. They rely on data to understand where they are. They rely on data to figure out who they're engaging with. They rely on data to figure out, are they ahead, behind? So not only has the technology evolved, but the people that, that are in support of the continuous customer journey have had to be evolved and be open to using data to make decisions. So to your last point there, the profile of a sales rep has evolved. I couldn't agree more. It's changed dramatically. The relationship rep, I call it the steak dinner rep in every NFL city, that has changed. I do believe that has changed. And that has probably been accelerated with all this working from home because that in-person, you know, understanding your account, having the badge to Coca-Cola in Atlanta is not very relevant today. Can you teach an old dog new tricks? 
And what I mean by that is, do you think that there's too many sacred cows for traditional sales reps, sales leaders that maybe they manage with a spreadsheet, they sell based on relationships? Is there a place for those reps? Or do you hire for those reps? Like, what do you look for? Or do you think, hey, we can coach these people into being more data oriented? And anyway, I'll leave it there. Well, obviously, the the evolution is up to each individual seller, right? And I've seen sellers of all ages and genders, et cetera, either decide they were going to evolve and become amazing or decide that they couldn't and weren't going to cut it. I look at, so if you look at my resume, you've seen the big companies I've worked for. Some of them have 30,000 sellers. But at the end of the day, maybe 18% of those sellers are actually making their number. Why? Because there's so much inefficiency in how big companies go to market. They don't have commanding control. They don't have data to make decisions. A lot of time is spent, 30,000 sellers, how many levels of management do you have? Probably 10, 20. Each one of those levels of management is trying to understand what happened at the level below and get to a, a narrative that they can use to run the business on. That is a massively manual process of spreadsheet of one-on-ones, and I'll just call it interrogation, telephone tag, right? The story changes as you go. So there is a massive amount of efficiency in these big companies and these old companies. And some of the sellers have changed and others don't know how to change their ways. And you know, before COVID, I spent a lot of my time in San Jose Airport. And I would see a lot of my old friends who were, were still you know, running their franchises the way they did 10 years ago and hadn't evolved. And I was happy to see others talking to them that have evolved. But if you're going to continue to learn at this point, at any point in your career, you have to evolve. You have to be open. And if you evolve and leverage data, you get better. You become more efficient. You close more. But most importantly, you're satisfying your customer because you really are in sync with them. And at the end of the day, it's all about your customer and helping them achieve remarkable and whatever remarkable is for them. So I think the answer to your question, Dubin, is it's up to the individual if they want to evolve. The greatest thing for me at this point in my career, especially having so many young people on my team, is I evolve every day. I learn every day from the young, smart people, not from the past experience I've had. I'm so glad I made the transition into this world. You asked me another question on who I hire. Okay, in a scrappy, you know, young company, the biggest thing I look for is curiosity. Is this person open and curious about their customers' business processes and how they can make them better? Are they going to be consultative? Are they going to put the army to work to help this company out? The second one is an acceleration mindset. Do they know how to help a customer move through a journey with them? It's going to get an optimal result, obviously, them becoming a customer, but two, helping that customer understand the value prop that we're going to drive for them. And obviously, three is, is someone who can be a general manager of their own business, treated as a franchise. I want them when I'm doing a, by the way, we've evolved from quarterly business reviews to quarterly business planning. I want that sales rep to tell me what are they going to do in their franchise and how are they going to put the organization to work and me to work for them. I look for those three things at the stage of company that we're in. So in this show, we talk a lot about exactly what we're talking about, qualities that we look for in hiring, because it, again, if we mess almost everything else up, but we hire the right people, we're going to be okay. 
How do you qualify for specifically two of those things, curiosity and a GM of their own business in an interview process when they may not have the opportunity to do the executive tour and the consultative approach? They might not have that much time. In fact, they might only have like an hour and a half across three people. What are things that you do to qualify for curiosity and GM of their own business? Quite honestly, right now that we're, we're hiring people and onboarding remotely, right, you have to even be better at it. It's a lot of situational questions. You know, you get them to talk and walk you through a scenario or a situation and how they handle it, right? And you'll set them up with three or four different ones. And as we think about the interview process, each of the folks in that interview process are testing for curiosity, GM mindset, acceleration mindset, and also grit, right? You got to be able to grind and get creative and get things done. So we, we test for those in all of the individual interviews that we do. And then when we have someone that we want to go through you know, a final process with, we have them do a situational presentation to that panel that had interviewed them before to see how are they going to do in front of a customer? How are they going to be able to present, field hard questions? And by the way, every employee of our company goes through this. I had to do it. I mentioned it earlier in the process. So we feel like we've got the formula down for success at Clary now. We didn't have this overnight. It took us a couple quarters to refine this after I came on of who our ideal candidate was and how they were going to be successful here. And honestly, you have two different businesses, commercial enterprise, you have inside sellers. There's a bit of a different experience and profile for those. You know, at our size, we feel like we're doing a really good job. I got to ask you, so you've been selling to salespeople for a little while now. I've never done it, but my friends always ask me, because I come from a, I guess, sales background. They always ask me whenever they want to go get a new car or whatever, they say, Jubin, can you come with us and like help us negotiate, right? Because of course, if I'm a salesperson, I must be a magical negotiator. And I always tell them I am horrible. In fact, because when I go to the car dealership, I feel so bad. You know, I just understand their job. And the last thing I want to do is negotiate. And like, I'm the easiest sell. I just think I'd have a hard time selling the salespeople. Others think it's really easy because, you know, they understand your world. What's your perspective? It's funny you ask that. And it's funny you bring up the car dealership because I let my wife negotiate the cars because just like you, I, I know they're trying to, to get the most out of the deal and she's great at it. But the nice thing about selling to other salespeople is they're kind of cut and dry, right? They're going to tell you where you are. Hey, I want to do business with you. Let's get business done. Or, hey, I've got a couple of things in front of me. Timing's not right. We're going to revisit this in two months. So I feel like you waste less time trying to get to a yes or a no. And then when it comes to negotiation, I'll say it's much more efficient than selling into you know, another line of business, IT or CFO. You can net it out. I'm not going to say it's easier. It's just more matter of fact. Yep. Less games. That makes sense. I want to make sure we talk a little bit about forecasting. Admittedly, I don't have the opportunity to talk much about this, but I think Clary in its outset was designed initially, the first use case was forecasting, making you more effective at forecasting. Maybe I'm wrong, but that was certainly a big use case when I was leading the team to make sure we could roll up the forecast and do so in a predictive way. And then over time, it gives you trends and analysis over how that forecast may go up or down based on historical data that it's seen quarter over quarter. Now you need historical data. So it takes about a year for the system to really soak in an intelligent way. But I think that's a good use case for Clary. So I thought who better than to ask you about a little bit of forecasting stuff. So question for you. I want to tee this up. So 
You said in uh, some blog post, or maybe it was something else that I was listening to, you said, if you're a public company, calling a number to the street drives shareholder value. If you're private, forecasting sales and the ability to do it accurately and predictably reflects the health of the business to the board of directors. I just wanted to set the stage of, it's never talked about, it's never interviewed for, and it's rarely even measured, but it is that important to the business. Kevin, what are your thoughts on that? I would say the single most important number to any company is the forecast. Why? Because if you have visibility early in a quarter, right? If you're a, any company, but you know, quite honestly, publicly traded company, you can make different decisions. You may say, I am going to blow it out, right? You think about Zoom right now, who's, who can see that their pipeline is increasing exponentially. The rate of opportunities are moving forward. They can make other investments. They can hire ahead of the number. They can buy companies ahead of the number. And vice versa, if you see a trend down, so think about when COVID hit, right? All these companies are scrambling to replant. Clary, those that were using Clary could actually see the effects of COVID instantaneously on the pipeline. They could see deals slipping. They could see deals stalling. They could be deceleration. They could also see it at the top of the pipeline. So if you see changes, you can adjust your operating plan faster. Hey, maybe I need to cut budgets across the company. Maybe I need to reset the targets that we're going to hit as an organization. Maybe I need to put some of the additional hiring on hold. So the forecast to me is the single most important number because it is the major input into the operating plan of a company. Not just for the current quarter, but quite honestly, looking out for five, six, seven, eight quarters and being able to really understand where you're going. So forecast is the heart of clarity. Sorry to interrupt you, but I guess in my mind, if forecasting is so important to you, to leadership teams and to the lifeblood of the business, why don't we measure forecast accuracy? And what I mean by that is that if you go to 50 sales reps profiles today, maybe one of them will say accuracy to my forecast, maybe none right? If you look at most businesses and maybe you guys do things differently, but there is no incentive or measurement for, we measure everything else, but we don't measure something that is seemingly so important. What's up with that? So you think about it, what is the single most important role in any company? It's those that are going to go drive revenue and acquire revenue. And when I look back, almost every other line of business within a company has a solution that helps drive process, right? Supply chain, supply chain management process, procurement, different procurement processes. Sales is the only field up until Clary that was really all about the art, all about the individual. There was no common way to understand each individual seller's business and roll that up in a way that was consistent and where you were using data and quite honestly, data science to measure the ability to forecast. And so when we go into a new customer, we do something called a revenue assessment. And what we very quickly see is this. So if I take each individual first line sales manager, their ability to call their number is all over the map. Like we see this just all these lines going this way. And then after being on Clary in a quarter, we start to see those lines come together. We start to see a consistent line. Why is that? Because Clary allows the reps 
to manage their opportunities by visualizing and understanding data, right? So at the heart of Clarity, we're a time series data hub. We're collecting CRM data and non-CRM data, and we're bringing it together and we're applying machine learning. What the machine is telling us is, based on two years worth of history, how an opportunity has moved through the funnel and evaluating about 200 points on that opportunity, we can tell, is this opportunity trending in the right direction based on history, based on human factors, et cetera, or is it out of sync? And we help spot risk or signal, hey, this opportunity, even though the rep might forecast it and the manager's calling it in the call, none of the signals suggest that it should be in the forecast. So the big thing we start to change, right, when you have all your sellers and your managers using Clary to manage their opportunities, is they start to evaluate these opportunities through a data-informed lens that helps them understand, is this an opportunity that can close now, or do we have another three months worth of work and all these other people that we got to get to? And so all of a sudden, what you start to see is the deals that a manager has included in their forecast are deals that should be in the forecast versus in the old world of running your business off of you know, CRM, Excel, and analytics, you'd find that half of the deals that they had in commit were deals that would slip out of the quarter that wouldn't close or would be closed lost. Now, the proportion of deals that are in the commit are deals that actually close. And the ones that aren't are ones that we work to change the narrative on. So data has helped increase the accuracy on predicting opportunities that are going to close which then informs how well a manager forecasts. So we see all over the map, get to a consistent trend line. And now what we have the ability to do is compare quarter over quarter, a manager's accuracy ahead of sales' accuracy. I think I'm on my, I don't know, eighth quarter of running the business on Clary. This is the start of my second quarter with Clary. Coming out of QBPs now, right? Quarterly business planning. First quarter of 2019, two and a half weeks into it, Clary called my number. And I had a question, can I rely on the machine? And I had the ability to pressure test what the machine was calling. And I go, Andy, holy shit, we're going to blow the quarter out. Let's go make some different decisions. So by having that early visibility into the business, you can change and make so many different decisions. And look, you don't rely on just the AI. You triangulate, right? You've got what the opportunities are saying, what the reps are saying, what the managers are saying, what Clary's AI is saying. And quite honestly, you still got to have your own gut, spidey sense is what I like to call it. When you have all these points of data, you get confidence. Yeah, it's funny. So one of the guests that I had on was the VP of sales of Mixpanel, Mecca. And he was basically Jonah Hill in Moneyball. So he was the GM of analytics for the Cleveland Indians the most data-driven person ever. And so we talked a lot about how he's so data-oriented in his role as the head of sales for Mixpanel. And my challenge to him was that, do you lose your feel in an analytics and data world? And what I mean by that, and I've even seen this happen in this world, I have seen people become over-reliant on the AI and lose their feel. And what I mean by that is they actually lose their gut intuition of, is this deal actually qualified, right? You know, similar to what Mecca talked about, he'd say that scouts, you would build a buffer of a scout that says this scout tends to over index towards these characteristics. Just like 
you start to build a persona of reps, like first line managers on their team, where they can start to build an intuition about, hey, these reps tend to sandbag or under forecast, or these reps are very optimistic. And often they put deals and commit that shouldn't be there or whatever. And so I do think it's really important for us to move towards more data. And having that data makes our gut more in tuned. Yes. I get nervous that we lose our gut sometimes and just get over reliant on like, oh, well, this is what the data shows. And piece of AI that basically spits out a number for us. And great. You still got to have your gut. The great thing that the AI does, though, is not everybody has the same radar for a deal. And you'll see this in sellers. Some sellers are so good at running a process, they don't really have a great radar on how it's going to close, the value it's going to close for, and timing. And so the AI helps level the entire organization by using data to drive consistency. What I've found is my spidey sense is still always accurate. Maybe that's why some people get into serial roles is they've got that, that ability to just kind of see where things are going. But it's a great leveling of the whole sales organization and giving them the same lens to evaluate the business and then make judgment. I'll give you an example. On a lot of Sunday nights, I'll dial into Clary after my kids go to bed and I'll look at the entire business for the quarter. And I can see without having any human on the phone with me where my deals are moving in the right direction because I can see engagement with certain individuals. I can see that we've got access to Powerbase. I can see that we've got a next meeting on the calendar. But I also might see a deal, even it's still in the forecast, and I might see a red flag on it says, hey, we don't have the CFO engaged. or we haven't had an interaction with this customer in the last week. We may have sent them 15 emails, but they didn't respond to one. I am going to go reach out to that rep and that manager and just ask some questions. I didn't have to go and make five phone calls. I took a, a snapshot of it or used Clary Connect. And I said, hey, just want to call this out to you. So everybody in the organization can see the data and be helpful. And this is another evolution that sellers have to go through, right? They have to be open to being transparent. Meaning they get better if they're open to more data points of how they're doing as a seller, right? And you think about all these systems of engagement now that help sellers move things forward. It's not about inspecting them. It's about enabling them. Use data to get better. 100%. The Moneyball guy, you're not going to find one of him for every professional team, right? Maybe you get two or three of them. So how do you help the rest of them get up to the same level? You got to enable them with AI and data. I could have done this for a couple hours on each topic. Unfortunately, I, I want to be respectful of your time and we are bumping up to the top of the hour. I wrap up with same questions every time. The first, what does the word grit mean to you and how do you or your teams apply it? Grit for me, the ability to deal with a lot of adversity. As much as we're using data to drive selling, there's still things that come up that are out of everybody's control. Acquisition, change of leadership, going private, going public, a hurricane. You never know what's going to happen and you need to be able to get through that hurdle and do it with confidence and bringing your organization along. So selling is hard, right? This is what a lot of people don't know. And nothing happens in a sales situation unless you make it happen. And your ability to get through adversity is grit to me. If someone wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do so? Are you guys hiring or will you be hiring? 
yes to both questions. And I'll give you my email. It's Kevin K at Clary. Kevin, thank you for your time. Jubin, thank you so much, man. This was enjoyable. And I could have talked for hours as well. (laughs) (laughs) Part two sometime. Yeah, exactly. Cheers, man. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. Thank you folks for tuning in to learn from our amazing guest and for indulging me as the rambling host. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you'd like to get in touch or keep up with the pod, please follow me on Twitter at Jubin Mir or shoot us an email gtmg at kleinerperkins.com. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, please support the show by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. Thank you, and I will see you next time.